This week on the Backtable Podcast. The ABCs are that transgenderism is incredibly complicated, but the simple idea is that there are people assigned, say, female at birth, that would be the preferred terminology right now, who is a transgender individual and feels that their gender identity is male. So that is a trans male. To flip the coin, there are people assigned male at birth that have a female gender identity, and those would be trans females. And the third category would be someone who considers themselves to be non-binary. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Backtable podcast, your source for all things urology. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and at backtable.com. I am beyond excited and honored today to be able to introduce a close mentor of mine, Dr. Richard Santucci. He is the author of over 200 scholarly publications. He served on the editorial boards of more than 12 journals. He was the former director of the Center for Urologic Reconstruction and a full clinical professor at the Michigan State College of Osteopathic Medicine. I had the honor to train with Dr. Santucci when he was chair of urology, where I completed residency at Detroit Medical Center. He's currently a reconstructive urologist at the Crane Center in Austin, Texas. He has been a mentor not only for my career, but also for life in general. Welcome, Dr. Richard Santucci, to Backtable Urology. Hi, Dr. Hahn. It's really a pleasure to be here. All right. So you are someone who has always taught me to think bigger and unconventionally. So it wasn't that much of a surprise to me as it may have been for everyone else when you joined Dr. Curtis Crane to perform transgender surgeries. Can you tell me a little more about the Crane Center and what drew you to making that career pivot from trauma reconstruction to gender affirmation reconstruction? Sure. I was quite happy in Detroit. I had been there for 17 years. We had a great residency program, as you might remember. I had a fellowship program, and I was doing what I needed to do. I was climbing up and down all the hills in reconstructive urology and, and quite content with that. And then, you know, out of the corner of my eye, I saw the most interesting reconstructive urology happening around anywhere, but I wasn't part of it. And so what I did was I jokingly say I tricked the Crane Center into hiring me. And that, that's important because it's a very high volume center. And I don't think there's anything such as being an amateur part-time transgender surgeon. And so because they were doing five days of surgery a week, I could sort of put myself in transgender surgery school and come up to speed very quickly. And it's been very rewarding. I love the patients. I love the work. I love that there's a lot of undone work in this field. And so if you have some modest abilities in surgery and in research, you can really push the ball forward. That's amazing. So to dive in, many of our listeners are your average general urologist. And I know that there are many barriers that prevent people from talking about the services you guys offer there at the Crane Center. I think part of the problem is not understanding terminology. And I know I myself also get a little apprehensive sometimes because I'm just worried that I'll use the wrong term and offend someone. So in effort to boost our vocabulary, can we maybe go over some simple terms and definitions? Sure. You know, it's really interesting there was nothing that made me a natural expert in this. So I was the same person you were when I did started to do this uh, every day. And I had to ask my patients and my colleagues questions all the time. So there's nothing wrong with that. The ABCs are that transgenderism is incredibly complicated. But the simple idea is that there are people assigned, say, female at birth. That would be the preferred terminology right now warning terminology changes quickly and over time. So who is a transgender individual and feels that their gender identity is male? So that is a trans male. To flip the coin, there are people assigned male at birth that in the fullness of time have a female gender identity and those would be trans females. Now, there is a third category. And the third category would be someone who considers themselves to be non-binary. So that means, you know, binary is 
one side of the coin or the other side of the coin, A or B, zero or one. And they're saying, look, 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 that doesn't really tell the story for me. And they may go by they, them pronouns, or you may notice that they, in their lifestyle, don't necessarily adopt the most conventional, you might see a trans male who is not, you know, a lumberjack with a full beard and much better muscles than I'll ever have. So yes, it can be complicated. Let me simplify it. Have you ever walked into one of your patient's rooms and not really been 100% sure what their name is? Maybe you're seeing 30 patients that day. And so how would you handle that? You would say, Mrs. Smith, perhaps with a rise in your voice to double check that you've got Mrs. Smith's room. You can say, you know, could you confirm your name for me, please? There's sort of ways to be polite about that. And what you'll find sometimes in the transgender world is that gender markers haven't been officially changed. So my patient, Jake Smith, who is a New York City firefighter, great beard, really big muscles, the most masculine individual I've ever met, is still marked on their chart as Mary Smith. And it's pretty important to not, the vernacular is dead name them or misname them, but it's as important for them as anybody, right? You don't want to walk into Mrs. Smith's room and say, okay, Mrs. Jones, I, you know, you're fine. You're free to go. You know, <laughs> wait, whoa, whoa, I'm not. So, I mean, you got to get it right. Let's say um, you just don't know. Just ask. Say, what do your friends call you? What shall I call you? And that way he'll say, John. And you're like, okay, that makes a lot more sense than the Mary gender marker that's written on your, written on your chart. So speaking of gender markers, are there requirements for individuals to meet before they can change their gender markers, say, on their driver's license? Absolutely. Yeah. Every state is different. Some states just say, look, designate your gender marker, can be male, female, or neither. And some actually require genital gender confirmation surgery. And so we actually end up processing a lot of people's paperwork. Once they've had their surgery, they're like, please sign this. And then they can change their gender marker. Now, basically, they have to have bottom surgery in some of these states. In some states. So in general, however, a trans woman or trans man, do they actually need any type of surgery before being considered that? They don't need surgery at all. They just feel that they are. Yes, it's very independent of surgery. I believe, I feel that most transgender folks would undergo a social transformation first, which might involve the name change, correct gender identifiers. Maybe later they would choose hormones. Maybe later they would choose top surgery. Maybe later they would choose bottom surgery. It's interesting to me, at least, that among trans females, about 50% of them desire gender confirmation bottom surgery, but 50% don't, no intention of getting it. About 30% of those folks actually get the surgery, many barriers for, I think, for people to get surgery. Among the trans male population, only about 3% actually get surgery. That has a lot to do with the fact that it's sometimes more complicated surgery. I had to have that explained to me. Wait a minute, 97% of trans men don't want genital surgery because to me, the genitals we're having a very high ranking of importance, but uh, to my patients, uh, maybe not so important that their gender dysphoria is solved by social, hormonal, behavioral treatments, and that they don't require any further surgery to be complete. So I guess for your general urologist encountering an individual in this trans community, I guess, what would you recommend in terms of documentation? You know, like, should we just make notes, like top only, bottom? You know, because obviously there are different things that we have to keep up with depending on the parts that are still there. It's such a great question. And, and I, think you, I think I would comment on the operative state because it really does matter. Maybe the world of intersex helps us. So you might say, this is an intersex patient assigned female at birth who had masculinizing genital surgery at age three, who now has a urethral stricture. You know, that's pretty technical, right? And as a urologist, we'd feel pretty comfortable with all that. You understood me perfectly when I gave that history. And so maybe uh, for our world, that's the appropriate thing to do. So you don't have to be endlessly politically correct. You simply need to be medically correct. So I would have no trouble saying this is an unoperated trans female who complains of stress urinary incontinence. And so now you know that this is uh, 
person whose genitals would look like male genitals and they haven't had surgery and you'd be able to proceed? I mean, I think personally, I have encountered a couple individuals in the trans community. And for me, it was just documentation. I was, it took forever because I just didn't know what to say. And then also in counseling patients, you know, throwing words out there like a normal woman, like that's not what I'm trying to say, but I don't know how else to say it. So then I'm, I'm obviously educating myself, cis female, you know, something like that. But I think your general urologist is also going to be tripping over that right now too. Could be. I think getting rid of the word normal would really go a long way. You know, if you do a paniculectomy for someone who's obese, I don't think we say, I'm going to restore you to the normal condition. No, that's just not how we talk. Back to our intersex individual, you would never say to an intersex, oh, so you had surgery and then we're normal, or you were abnormal and then we made you normal. I mean, so probably we need to get rid of, of normal. And I would never shy away from using medically correct anatomic terms. So I might say to my trans male, let's go to my index patient I keep referencing, New York City firefighter, far more masculine than I could ever hope to be in my life. And I might be able to say, so you're having pain in your clitoris because that's the anatomically correct word for this unoperated, in this case, you know, male. And some of the community of transgender folks has used other words like they might write out vagina with V, like it's a bad word, star G-I-N-A. That's just a way to sort of, you know, there's some people who won't say the word God out loud and they're just not so interested in writing the word vagina. They might call it their front hole. And so there is some vernacular. Even the clitoris might be called the phallus in some of these patients, A, because it makes them more comfortable and B, because there is a usually clitoral enlargement from testosterone and it's pretty phallic. But don't, I, I guess I'll, I'll just finish by saying, let's not get too bound up in these words, I think if you're respectful and have your antenna up, it's the same as talking to any patient about any complicated thing, cancer, erectile dysfunction. So are there certain things that you can see as shortcomings in just like a, an average clinic setting where, you know, we could improve just like patient intake, front desk, like how to call patients in, you know, that sort of thing, just to be able to make this community feel more comfortable. Yeah, no question. I mean, because we're so bound up in getting the name right. So they come in with a driver's license that says Esther Han, but really they're going by Jake Han. They have a female gender marker, but their identity is male. You can imagine that you're going to dead name them and misgender them, you know, four times in the process. And it doesn't take very much work to sort of say to the front desk, hey, just keep your eyes open. And this is something that you're going to have to deal with. We have the problem the opposite way. Occasionally, we see cis males for who have severe penile inadequacy or, or post-extrophy or something like that. And it's really hard for us to remember that this is a cis male. Yes. I mean, I think my experience has been in a big healthcare system where retention is low. So that's a constant need to obviously teach and reteach. Um, not that we shouldn't do it, but that certainly poses challenges for those who are in that kind of system. And you might buddy up with the patient and just say, listen, you're going to get misgendered like nine more times today. And we just both agree that that's going to happen and realize that I know who you are and I know what you need today. And, you know, we're just not going to educate the whole damn world this morning, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so, and, you know, you can become their ally a little bit in the silliness of it. I'll quickly say it can be a real problem. There's a, there is a transgender surgery center that I really respect. I know the doctors personally. I think they're technically excellent. I think they're devoted to excellent care. And they just didn't get the file out to the hospital when they started to take patients. And patients got misgendered, you know, the 40th time during an admission they got really mad and they ended up with a lot of official complaints to the state. And maybe the little old cute little old lady you have in your clinic would also complain if somebody called her Mrs. Smith instead of Mrs. Jones 50 straight times. They didn't get that right, even though they got so much of it right. And it, it hurt them. And I know that they wish they had done a better job. 
So why don't we talk a little bit about the surgeries? You know, obviously no one's going to come out an expert in any of these surgeries after this interview, but maybe we can go over briefly differences between metoidoplasty versus phalloplasty, vaginoplasty versus vulvo, you know, all the other combinations there as well, I suppose. Yeah. So let's talk about trans female surgery. So assigned male at birth, adopting a female gender identity. The most common operation is a full-on vaginoplasty. That is one surgeon, takes us about three hours. They're admitted to the hospital for two days afterwards, and they go home with a vaginal pack, which is pretty uncomfortable, and a urethral catheter, and we take that out about a week later. I think because we're reconstructive urologists, we don't actually have a lot of urethral complications from that. I think that many of those patients don't, in fact, have urinary complaints afterwards. Sometimes in history, the doctors that were able to move this ball forward were plastic surgeons. And sometimes I wonder if they were quite as spiffy, just like I'm not a full-on plastic surgeon and I don't have the full knowledge set of a plastic surgeon. They didn't have the full knowledge set of a reconstructive urologist. And I feel like they sometimes got the urethra wrong. But anyway, I just think that you won't see too many of those patients because I think we've cracked the code on, on making their urethra. And I don't know, they just don't really go to urologists all that often. They often go to gynecologists for post-op care if it's required. Let's talk about trans males. So it's really common for trans males to have top surgery. And uh, I have no trouble empathizing with this. So I have a male gender identity. And if I woke up in the morning and I had large breasts, that would really bum me out. That is going to put a kink in my day. And some men will bind their breasts, but I mean, binding is uncomfortable. It's hot. It's not a good answer. And so a really high number of folks have mastectomies because it's just so awkward for them. So I would say most of my patients have come to me already with a mastectomy. You sort of have two major choices. You actually have an infinite number of smaller choices, but two major choices. You can have a medoidioplasty. This is a terrible word. It's from the Greek. It means moving towards, and in fact, moving towards the male state. It's a clever operation. So the standard medoidioplasty would be a patient who says, I'm a man, but I have a vagina. Okay, I'm going to get rid of that vagina. I'm getting a flat male type perineum. Cool. Apparently, men have scrotums. Let's build one of those. And then the clitoris, which is almost always gratifyingly elongated by the use of high-dose testosterone, is converted from its downward-facing, highly locked-in-by-tissue state into a phallus-looking phallus that's pointed up. You know, you have a bit of a cordee in that case. You just, you have more dorsal tissue than you have ventral tissue. So releasing that cordee is really important to sort of get it up. And then we would so-called lengthen the urethra. We would build what they, again, another terrible word, pars fixa urethra out of the labia minora. So that would be the full medoidioplasty. But I can promise you that patients pick every possible if-then combination there. Some people say, don't take out my vagina. Great, done. Some people say, don't lengthen my urethra. Some people say, don't make a scrotum. In our clinic, we're diving deep into the exact requests of the patient and, and providing them. Metapatients have a reasonable possibility of having a fistula. Most of these fistulae are quite small. They're about the size of like a grain of rice on the side, going sideways, and that's on the underside of the phallus. I don't think you'll ever see that because we do a second stage operation. So we do 95% of the operation. We wait six months and then we might put in testicular implants. We might lift the phallus a little bit to give it a better position. We might do what a patient would call a monsplasty, which is sort of defatting the fatty lower abdominal area. I call it an escutcheonectomy and penile lift because it's more accurate for both medicine and coding. So they're going to get a second stage operation. So we just roll in that fistula repair. So I'd like to believe that you just won't see a lot of metaphysicalists. Strictures do happen. We've sort of cracked the code on making that pars fixa urethra. And so the stricture rate is gratifyingly low, but it's not zero. And so I could see a situation, and I have in fact referred my distant medoidioplasty patients to urologists that I know, 
And usually what I'm asking for is, look, just dilate them, temporize them until I can get them to the six-month operation and I can fix their urethra. Rarely, there are reconstructive urologists who feel very comfortable taking care of these patients. And they would, you know, I could say, look, no reason to fly all the way down here. You're, you're next to Dmitry Nikolovsky in Syracuse. I'm sure he can help you. I'm trying to really highlight where the urologist interfaces with these patients. I'll finish with phalloplasty. So phalloplasty is creating a phallus out of, and you have lots of options. We tend to either use the forearm or the leg, and those are, have their costs and benefits. We can do latissimus dorsi, and people sometimes choose that because they can hide the scar better. The truth is the latissimus dorsi sort of has the worst aspects of both the arm and the leg, and it's not absolutely my favorite one. Other surgeons do abdominal tissue phalloplasty. We prefer not to do that because it's insensate. And for us, it doesn't have a lot of benefits over ALT or RFF. Same story I told you before. Vagina in or out, scrotum yes or no, urethral lengthening yes or no. I have to tell you that most of our patients are going to pick the full-on Mercedes. So they're going to get removal of the vagina, male type perineum, make a scrotum, make a urethra, make a phallus. Most of our patients are going to want a penile implant as well. Where you're going to interface with these patients is urethral strictures. There is an appallingly high urethral stricture rate. Say it's 40%. And we monitor our patients quite closely and we see where they are like, oh, look, sounds like you've gotten a stricture. Are you going to make it to the date that I have planned to fix your stricture? Maybe they need a temporizing dilation at a local place. Some patients show up in the emergency room in retention and they simply need a super pubic tube. That is harder than it should be. So I've had some very uncomfortable conversations. People say on the phone, well, I don't know anything about phalloplasty. And I said, well, you know what? I don't need you to know anything about phalloplasty. I need you to know what my intern knows about putting super pubic tubes in. So it's really simple. And then here's a life pro tip. All of those patients have a super pubic tube scar. And I promise you that if you go five millimeters above that or five millimeters below that, you're going to go right into the bladder. And so they, they've got a bullseye for you. So whatever way you get your super pubic tubes in, bedside, IR, OR, doesn't matter. They're in retention and it's usually quite easy to get in. So for the phalloplasty, is it just skin that you're using for the urethra? Yeah. So the proximal urethra, that poorly named pars fixa, is the same one as for meta. So it's the labia minora rolled together. So the flaps, of, you try to take as good flaps as you can and roll together. And as I say, we almost never have complications in the actual pars fixa. Then the penile urethra is a, the so-called tube within a tube method where we would roll it to make a urethra, roll it again to cover over and make a phallus. That connection point is the bad point. So the location of the stricture in 99.9% .9 of cases is in the same place. It's in the upper scrotum and it's between the attachment point. What are you building the scrotum from? The scrotum is from the labia majora. And, you know, if you think about it embryologically, it's the same structure in both genders. So all little embryos are female and then testosterone kicks in and those with testes and then the labia majora form into the scrotum, the labia minora form into urethra. So we're sort of recapitulating embryology a little bit. I just, I guess I normally think about the scrotum as having just so much more surface area, but I guess the labia has quite a bit as well. <laughs> and it's highly variable. One of the frustrations, if I can say it that way, is that I have to build, I feel like a home builder and I build homes, but someone else drops off the bricks and concrete. And so sometimes I get there and I'm like, oh, not enough bricks. And so what we have to do in that case is maximize what we've got. In the scrotum, you got a couple things going for you. One is I really maximize the size of the scrotum, meaning I don't leave any millimeters of labia majora behind. That's first thing. Second thing is that the labia are quite pliant. And so in the scrotal position, we often get a really great scrotum. And then later when they get testicular implants, you get a very natural effect. And then finally... I'm going to struggle to explain this, but I'll do my very best. So the phallus goes over the pubic bone. The scrotum is built to a point 
I build it at least to the adductor tendon, but sometimes I'm going about a centimeter above the adductor tendon. And so probably you've got two, three centimeters between the so-called top of the scrotum and the base of the phallus. And that makes a very, I think, aesthetically acceptable upper scrotum area. So it's a way to get a little bit of extra space there. So for patients who do opt for the vaginectomy, are you performing a hysterectomy at that time? Yeah, you could imagine how awkward it would be if you had a vaginectomy and you hadn't removed their uterus. We're asking patients that are having phalloplasty to have their hysterectomy at least three months ahead of time. We just want them fully healed from that surgery. Same way with meta, although at times we can do the hysterectomy laparoscopically at the same time as the medoidioplasty. I will highlight two important things about that. One is that you have to address fertility with your patients. Sometimes what patients are saying is, look, leave my vagina in because I'm not sure about what my future fertility is going to be. Now, if you left the ovaries in, you can actually harvest eggs laparoscopically, but it's far more cumbersome than doing it transvaginally with ultrasound. And so some of our patients are leaving their vaginas in place, not because they particularly want to keep their vagina for identity purposes or sexual purposes. They want to preserve their fertility. And are they on hormones? Two at the same time. Yeah, I mean, I would argue everybody's different, but I would argue that uh, that most people are sort of following this social first, hormone next, top surgery next, bottom surgery next sort of schema. So you're you're dead right. If you were interested in egg harvest, you'd probably have to come off testosterone for a little while, go on the clomiphene and or whatever agents you're using, and then harvest eggs, and then freeze the eggs, and then back to the program of genital confirmation surgery. So can you speak a little bit on just vulvoplasty? Yes, I'm so sorry that I missed that. So going back to this idea that it's patient-based, what we do for folks, there are folks who say, listen, I don't need or want a vaginal vault for purposes of intercourse. So please don't build me one. And suddenly you're doing a much easier operation on the patient. It's less operating, less complications. It's a fairly complicated scheme of self-dilation when you make a vaginal vault. So the one week after surgery, they're dilating two and three times a day. They're doing that for many months. They may have to dilate the rest of their lives, even if occasionally. And so we'll have folks that say, I'm not going to ever have receptive intercourse. I don't want that. I had a really interesting patient interaction that I wanted to share with you. I had an older trans woman. She was actually 70. And I think I had enough of a good relationship with her that I could ask her the hard questions and she wouldn't be angry at me. And I said, wow, why now? You know, you've gone 70 years. You could just kind of tough it out for a couple more decades. And she said the most interesting thing to me. She said, look, one day I'll probably statistically be in a nursing home. I want to be on the woman's floor because I'm a woman. I also even if I manage to make it on the woman's floor, I don't want to have to explain to three shifts of workers why Mary Smith has a penis. And so I need you to do a vulvoplasty for me so I don't have to have this conversation three times a day times the rest of my life. I obviously had never thought of any of that. So I was impressed by that as a very compelling reason to for the patient to get the surgery even at an older age. And do they have any complications as far as urination and that sort of thing go? I mean, it's the same story. I mean, it's really quite simple to shorten the long male urethra. The urethra sort of, I think of it as kind of as three parts. The, the proximal one-third becomes the short female type urethra. The middle one-third is actually repurposed. So the urethra is opened, and at the inferior part of that is the pee hole, and then the clitoris is actually punched through that. And so that gives you this pink, moist, labial-type tissue, just like a cis female that happens between the urethral meatus and the clitoris in the cis female. So we borrow the middle third and we discard the distal third. But in doing that, they just don't have that many lasting urinary complaints. And the glands, does it become smaller over time where you just bury it more? No, you must contour it into a clitoris-sized clitoris. And that's 
really interesting. So my goal is to make a cute button-like clitoris like the tip of your little finger. The problem with that is that all clitorises untract a little bit and retract a little bit. And what you can get in that case, if you start out perfect, in my view, is too small. You know, there's a, a very interesting book that tries to sort of demystify the female vulva and just has a bunch of pictures of female vulvas. Like, look, they're very different. Here's a hundred female vulvas. There are two trans women in that photo essay, and one of them has no clitoris. It has disappeared. I've called it the vanishing clitoris syndrome. I have no idea whether anybody else calls it that. And to me, that would be a bad result. And so what I tend to do is make a slightly larger clitoris, maybe more like your index finger, realizing that it will contract and retract a little bit and then perhaps be the perfect size. I also like the idea of saving the maximum number of sensory nerves at the glance. I don't like discarding sensory nerves. It's the reconstructive urologist in me. Well, as an FPMRS surgeon, I mean, we see the clitoris disappearing all the time for genital syndrome of menopause. So we do try to prevent that from happening. Yeah, yeah. No, it's exactly right. So for vaginal plastic, I just had a quick question. What do you normally use um, in terms of tissue to create that vaginal vault? There's basically two scripts here. The most common approach is the so-called penile inversion vaginoplasty. So in that case, the flap that is the whole penile skin is meticulously saved and then inverted. So the blood supply is still intact. And after you make the actual space of the vaginal vault, you can tuck that in the vaginal vault. And if you think about how that tissue is now being used, the phallus was pretty high up and it may only make it about a third of the way or even a half of the way in the vaginal vault. And a lot of that skin is creating the labia minora and the introitus, but you sort of run out of skin. So what we'll do is take the otherwise discarded scrotum, thin it down to split thickness levels so that it takes well, and sew it as a cap over that penile flap tissue. And so in the standard approach, Maybe the proximal one half is skin graft and the distal one half is skin flap. There is a very clever modification of this surgery. So back in the 60s, a guy named Davidoff said, oh, we can build young girls with vaginal agenesis. We could build the upper two-thirds vagina using peritoneum. And Li Zhao, very cleverly, he's a clever robot surgeon, he said, oh, I can harvest that robotically. So if you make an incision in the sort of pouch of Douglas area and then sew that incision to itself, you can bring those flaps down and those would be the vaginal, proximal vaginal flaps. We like this surgery, meaning if you ask me for this surgery, I would send you to my partner who does this in California. We haven't terribly felt the need to do the surgery ourselves because we get very adequate results without it. And maybe following kind of a minimalistic way of doing surgery to say, look, if I can get a 14 to 16 centimeter deep vaginal vault for the rest of your life, do I need four and a half hours of robotic surgery in addition? Personally, I don't. But again, if you say to me, you know, that's what I want, that's what I got my heart set on, then we're going to say, great, no problem. We're going to get that for you. I remember when I was in Uganda for fellowship for vaginal agenesis patients, the surgeons there essentially were just dilating into the peritoneum, creating this vaginal canal just by dilation. I mean, they were incising and then dilating how long that would stay. That was something they were doing just to try to expand that space. Yeah. I mean, you know, you and I have both been to the developing world many times to operate and, and one does what one needs to do at times. Uh, I suppose that works well enough. I'll bet you that you must be a really diligent dilator after that. Interestingly, intercourse ends up being a pretty good dilator. So if these are married women that you can sort of say, listen, we're going to give you a dilator, but you're really going to need to keep this thing dilated. It may actually work. Can you speak a little on NOLO surgery? I can. So going along this line that we established earlier that there were people who were not necessarily strictly binary, that there are folks that desire some degree of 
gender nullification or genital nullification. I haven't personally met a person assigned female at birth who wanted nullification, but it could happen. We're not shutting the door on those folks. Most of my patients are assigned male at birth, and they require some degree of nullification. The, the maximum would be that the testicles are removed, the scrotum is removed, and then it just the skin sewn over. The penis is removed completely and discarded. And then obviously they have to urinate, so you bring a perineal urethrostomy out somewhere in your wound. And those patients do very well from that surgery. I have had patients that would say, well, okay, build on that, but leave my glands like buried. I don't want to see it, but I want it under there. So in that case, you would deepothelialize the glands. There's still lots of nerves there. And you would keep some sort of sexual function by keeping the head of the phallus buried under the skin. And then I have had some that have said, take my glands and just work it into the closure. So you have a paranoid urethrostomy empty space, glands that's sort of been opened, spatulated outward, and then more suture line above that. And for any of these surgeries, do the patients have to see a psychologist? Yes, we follow WPATH guidelines. And so and this is going to get complicated because they just changed the guidelines two months ago. But the guidelines that we've been working under for most of the time require two letters of mental health professionals. One of them has to be the rank of an MD or a PhD. The other one can be social work or whatever counselor that isn't MD, PhD. And at least one year on hormones. And that usually just requires a simple letter from the hormone provider. Here's where it gets complicated. What if you don't mean to be in hormones? What if you never want to be on hormones? So obviously we don't make them go on hormones. Then the letters change to Joe Smith has no desire to be on hormones and has never been on hormones. And that's Good enough. That's the same as the letter that establishes that they've been on for more than a year. Pretty awkward. The new guidelines that have just come out in August only require one letter and the rank of the therapist can be anything. The problem is that we're getting these letters mostly for the because they're an insurance company requirement. I mean, obviously, we have a vested interest in making sure our patients are have a fixed identity that they're not going to want to change in the future because the surgeries are uh, almost impossible to reverse. I mean, possible-ish to reverse only. So we're obviously interested in the patient being stable and correctly identified and all of those things. But anyway, it's the insurance companies that are going to require these three letters. And so even though the guidelines have changed, what our patients need to hear is that it's still three letters until years in the future, the insurance companies catch on. Have there been studies on any kind of patient regret for doing this? Regret's a fascinating subject because it takes up so much of people's headspace and time. And so I'll talk a little bit about regret. So we at our center have done more than a thousand phalloplasties. We're well known as being, and I don't know how many medodioplasties, but many. We're well known as being fix-it surgeons. So if you've had a problem that persists from other surgeries done elsewhere, we're often able to operate on you and, and get you where you need to be. So we, we see thousands and thousands and thousands of patients and none of us have ever met a single regret patient. Wow, that must make regret pretty uncommon. But regret patients exist. And there is one, and I'll give you a, one example. There's a gentleman who had a surgery in a foreign country. And I believe that the criteria in that foreign country for surgery was, do you have 10,000 euro? It wasn't did you get us the two letters, the three letters? You know, have we interviewed you for 30 minutes to make sure that your understanding of surgery is uh, what we would hope it would be for success? And he regretted having, I, I believe he had a vaginoplasty and he regretted it and then later had a phalloplasty. This was more than 15 years ago, but this guy is recycled in the news cycle. So he'll keep showing up oh, I had surgery and I regretted it. And you're like, wait, you're the same guy 15 years ago. Finally, let me say two more things about regret. It's very important for me. You know, I know, like you, I'm an experienced clinician. I can talk to my patients, understand them, use empathy to put myself in their shoes. And if I get a feeling that a patient is not a good candidate, I'll think nothing of saying, you know what? Yes, but not now. You need more time to think about what you're doing. I will quickly tell you what my index phalloplasty patient looks like. 
So my index phalloplasty patient, if I had to just average them all, morph them all into one person, it would be someone who tells you, look, at five, I knew. At seven, I developed enough agency to never wear girls' clothes again. I was like, forget it, not wearing that. Everyone who's ever known me has known me as Jake the boy. When I was 18, I started hormones. When I was 20, I got my breasts removed. And now I'm 28 and I'm ready for gender confirmation surgery. So you can imagine this is not a patient at high risk for regret. This is a patient whose entire life has moved towards this point. Finally, I went to a really fascinating lecture the other day about the subject of regret. And apparently there is some minor forms of regret that are worth noting. One is that patient's happiness with any surgery, cholecystectomy, cancer surgery, has everything to do with complications. So if people don't have complications, regret is very low. If people have all the complications, regret is very high. But I don't know that that's special to gender surgery. And finally, there is phenomenon to which regret is applied. So let's say you're 18 and you say, you know what, I need to go on male hormones. You know, that's just who I am. You spend a couple years on male hormones and you go, you know what? I've virilized. I've got a good beard. My muscles have grown. I can come off hormones now. I'm okay. You know, maybe I'm non-binary. Maybe I've gotten enough of what I need. And so those people will come off hormones. And this lecture and researcher made it clear that they didn't consider that to be regret. They consider that to be, yeah, I'm good. You know, got what I needed. So we've gone over the surgeries. Let's move on to some recommendations. And I know you've, you've kind of thrown a few tidbits in there in terms of stricture. You might have us dilate or put an SP tube in. What about risks of incontinence or post-war dribbling after phalloplasty? The good news is we really don't get incontinence, right? We're going to leave the natal female continence mechanism completely intact. I'm only going to operate on the urethral meatus and beyond. And so thank God I haven't seen incontinence. Have you? I personally haven't, but I actually pulled a group of FPMRS surgeons, and that was a question that they had wanted to ask. Interesting. Yeah. I would argue that incontinence in an operated trans male or an operated trans female is a nightmare because you don't have all the tools that you want. So you can whip in a sling or anything like that in a patient in 20 minutes. Well, that's not really a 20-minute surgery in an operated person with a vaginoplasty. So many of the established treatments are not there anymore. And you may have to pull back into like really understanding their incontinence. Is it overactive bladder? Can I treat their stress or incontinence with Botox, even though that doesn't make sense because anything to just decrease the storage pressures, therefore less SUI. Are you going to use urethral bulking agents? Probably you almost never use urethral bulking agents, but you would in this population. Yeah, I mean, I think post-war dribbling after phalloplasty, the idea is, I mean, the native urethra, there isn't sort of like that anti-incontinence mechanism of the prostate being there. So if they develop that, do you have recommendations? Well, yes. I guess I was really discussing stress urinary incontinence or urge incontinence. Urge being quite easy to fix, as you can imagine. Yeah, we're good at that. Post-war dribbling, I'm going to say, is 100% of phalloplasty patients. So some degree of post-war dribbling. And, you know, the problem is that the cis male urethra is actually pretty cleverly designed. So when you urinate, it's elastic. And so it balloons outward. And then that elastic energy as the urine column decreases goes you and empties the urethra. Cool system. And trans males that might have a foot of reconstructed urethra and especially their penile urethra, that's just a tube. That's just a PVC pipe. And so... As their voiding pressures fall at the end of urination, they're just left with a column of urine. And all of them become quite experienced at starting way underneath the scrotum and milking that urethra very effectively outward. And it's just kind of a life skill. And I find that when they get good at that, they get happier. Let me also say that severe post-void dribbling can often be a sign of urethral stricture. So if your urethral stricture signs are not obvious, decreased force of stream, poor emptying, daytime frequency, nocturia, what they might get is actually what I call ballooning so that the pars fix is quite pliant and then you have a fixed stricture in the upper scrotum. So when they pee, they sort of blow out their pars fixa very large and they can see it or even feel it. 
And then you can imagine that as you walk around in your day, that huge ballooned up urethra just empties out the tip and you experience that as post-void dribbling. For a trans female, most of the time you are, you're keeping prostates, correct? No, no, you're definitely leaving the prostate in. Two quick things about that. So when you make the space for the vagina, it's fascinating to me that I make this very differently than my partner who's a general surgeon. Right. So she's a crackerjack general surgeon. So to her, she finds the rectum and stays on top of the rectum. Yeah. She doesn't want to see the urethra or the prostate. I hug the urethra and prostate because I know just where they are. And I don't want to see the rectum. I want the rectum to be well away from me. So whichever way you decide to do that, uh, you're going to go all the way back well past the prostate, even to bladder base to get a good. So clearly you're operating periprostatically there, except for the extremely rare urethral vaginal fistula that sometimes happens there. And usually that's because of injury, either noted or not noted during the original surgery. You know, the prostate's there, but it's, it's not important. So now we have to ask the question, a 60-year-old trans woman comes in that says, I had a vaginoplasty 25 years ago. Would you like to check my PSA? Ooh, wow. We don't really know. So here I can tell you what we do know. Probably you should check a baseline PSA. Probably that baseline PSA will be incredibly low because they've been on estrogen. Their testosterone levels are close to zero. So they'll have small atretic prostate. And then here's the kicker. If they do in fact get prostate cancer, they get a particularly nasty flavor of prostate cancer that isn't testosterone dependent. The prostate cancer you want is testosterone dependent. So take away testosterone, prostate with cancer shrinks like crazy. If you develop a clone that never saw testosterone, that tends to be an aggressive cancer. I mean, you're not going to see a lot of BPH then because of the hormone effect. No, just the opposite. They have pre-adolescent prostates. Gotcha. Very small. So you'd maybe recommend checking the PSA, but it might not be telling you very much. Yeah. I mean, it, the, the science is so poor right now that the best I can do for you is to say, well, get a baseline PSA to make sure it's not 72. Expect it to be low, like 0.2 low or one low. And then try to use all of your brain cells to follow them along over time so that you figure out, well, wait a minute, they went from one to four. That can't be right. You know, maybe I need to investigate this. The only good news is prostate cancer is incredible. So prostate cancer is incredibly rare in this population. When they get it, it's incredibly nasty. How have they been able to be diagnosed at that point? Is it, are there certain symptoms? Yeah, I mean, I suppose they could have obstructive voiding. You know, it's really hard in North America to have a prostate and not get your PSA checked. So I think they often get their PSA checked and they're, whoa, 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 12? That's not right. And would you be performing a biopsy transvaginally? I think you could. Are there any case reports of trans males having any kind of skinned gland carcinomas from the testosterone? No, not that I'm aware of. And, you know, that's awfully rare cancer. I think I've seen it once in my career. Well, I just didn't know because of the hormone situation. Yeah, no, we don't see that. So that's good. Is there any change to like microhematuria monitoring, say, in a trans male with the neourethra? Like, do we see more of that? What I do see is a urinalysis, which will show white blood cells, simply because it's a long urethra that can have maybe some mild inflammation, subclinical, non-clinically important inflammation. So they'll often have white blood cells, even though they don't have a UTI. They will often have positive urine cultures for things like staph epi, like what you'd expect to find on your skin and at low volumes. So it wouldn't be crazy to have 10,000 colony forming units of E. coli, but then that's just the normal state of the patient. If you culture my skin, my mouth, my ear, all those cultures are going to be positive, but I'm not sick. So you do have to be a little clever about your reading of their cultures and their urinalyses and not overcall UTIs. That a definition of UTIs still would stand in terms of greater than 100,000 colony for me, even? No, because I would treat somebody without 100,000. I think it's a lot like a person with a suprapubic tube. So if you a person comes in with a chronic suprapubic tube, they're going to have leukocyte esterase and a positive culture every single day. 
And if you're not thoughtful enough, you might treat them with antibiotics for the rest of their lives. Uh, and so you have to do that same sort of thing where you say, look, clinically, is there a problem here? And only get your analysis almost useless. So I almost never get them. And then I just get urine cultures, but only to advise myself about the bug potentially involved in someone with obvious UTI symptoms. I've never scoped a person with a neonurethra. Does it look the same? It's a pretty complicated structure. So in the penile urethra, it'll just look like a urethra. If they get narrowing, they can get narrowing at the tip. And often that's very short. And then they'll generally be nice and wide open through the entire phallus. And they'll maybe all have some relative little ring at the anastomosis point in the upper scrotum. We've developed a kind of quick and dirty diagnostic tool to say, if we can get a flexible scope through, it's not a clinically important stricture. And so I often tell people, look, do a urethroscopy right in the clinic, go to their upper scrotum. If you're able to get it past that upper scrotum, that's it, stop. The pars fixa is often very wide open. And then right at the native urethra, that can be highly variable. And sometimes you can have a little false passage there posteriorly. It sort of blows out a little bit. And I will tell you that when I blind catheterize a phalloplasty patient, I have no higher than a 50% chance of getting that catheter in. And I use a CUDE catheter and yeah, there's a 50-50 shot. I'm going to get it in. So if they're having spinal surgery and it's that classic consult we've all gotten as urologists, hey, we, the nurse can't get a Foley in. Well, you're going to have to scope it in, probably put a wire council catheter over that. What would you recommend in terms of your average urologist if they encounter, say, fistulas or IPP perforations? Like, is that, um, you just got to go see someone or? Yeah, we didn't talk too much about IPPs and we should. Fistulas, you should leave alone. Fistulas are inconvenient, but they're only inconvenient. And generally, I wait until at least six months has passed since the last surgery and then perform a fistula repair. So, you know, if you have a patient that doesn't have their primary doctor for whatever reason who did the surgery to take care of them, we'd be happy to see that patient and take care of their fistula. It's very, very straightforward. But I, I wouldn't recommend unless you have an avocation and real interest in doing them to dabble in that. So penile prosthesis, that's probably the other thing you could see. So after phalloplasty, a penile prosthesis has an appallingly high complication rate. So there's a 17% chance that it either infects or migrates enough to require surgery in the first year. That's pretty damn high. Now. I can save myself from feeling too horrible about that, that when I got into this field, that rate was closer to 45%. So by careful improvement of the surgery, we've gotten it down. I'm not happy with 17%, but I'm a hell of a lot happier than I was when it was 45%. So these patients are going to be like any penile implant patient. So if you saw a penile implant patient that was doing pretty well and then suddenly had swelling, redness, and pain in their phallus or anywhere near, you'd put them on antibiotics. You'd probably guess something like Bactrim because you want to cover staph epi. And a certain percentage of those people will get better. 15%, something like that. And the rest of them are going to progress to obvious implant infection. So it's not uncommon that I have a patient, say, from Canada, and I get the call from the Canadian doctor, hey, this thing's red, swollen, and painful. And I'm like, okay, it's infected. You got to take it out. So I do these through an incision a couple inches above the phallus. So there's an obvious incision there. I sew it to the symphysis pubis using a suture called fiber wire. So plastic surgeons know all about fiber wire. It's how they'd fix your Achilles tendon. It, it can't, it never breaks. It can't even be cut with regular scissors. It's really tough, but it looks like, looks like Vicol, but it's really tough. So you'll need a 15 blade to cut that stuff and realize that I'm going to put at least two of those sutures in. Sometimes I may trick you by putting three. So you'd want to get all of that out. And then at that point, I just close them. I say poorly. I close them not thoroughly. So I might put a single stitch through that incision just to kind of gap it together, and then they have to heal by secondary intention. There is a myth in the cis male implant world that if somebody has an infected pump, you could just take the pump out. I can promise you that it is all connected. And I've even had people say to me, you know, very strongly, like, no, 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 you can just take the pump out. And I'll say, look, the patient you sent me that you only took the pump out, 
they spit their reservoir out of a wound like six months later. Like it was horrible. Like, no, you're incorrect. So I will just also quickly say that you should just remove the whole darn thing. But it's actually pretty easy to remove because the capsule is not so very strong around it and it just tends to come right out. What have you guys done to decrease that risk of perforation? Boy, everything. So in terms of infection, basically anything that's ever been described in the literature to help, I do. So we can start with preoperative chlorhexidine baths at home, vancomycin and genomycin, IV, the right wound irrigation and soak. So the orthopedists have fallen upon this stuff called Irocept. All it is is dilute chlorhexidine. It's cheap, costs about 40 bucks, maybe 60 bucks. Realize that if you did the most antibiotic irrigation, you're looking at three or $4,000 worth of antibiotic irrigation. And then they say it works much better than any antibiotic irrigation they ever tried. So I've used Irocept, even though I don't have specific knowledge that it works in this. So Irocept, no touch technique, frequent glove changes, short surgery, takes me about 50 minutes, five, zero minutes, skin to skin to put one of these in. All of that helps. I irrigate the urethra out before as part of the prep so that I don't get some squame sort of coming out the urethra in the middle of my surgery. And we do a perhaps overkill four-part prep where we prep them with alcohol, betadine soap, betadine paint, and then DuraPrep or Chloroprep afterwards. So I do all the things. You asked about, though, not infection, you asked about erosion. So there's two flavors of erosion. Erosion flavor one is that perhaps even in a semi-rigid, that the device ends up sort of pushing through the tip. Now, I emphasize, I never let that happen to the point where it erodes. The patients are like, hey, I'm getting skin changes. It's tented at the tip. Yikes, let's do an urgent surgery and get that thing fixed. I don't have any pictures of that. I had to go into the literature to find pictures of that because you don't wait till the damn thing erodes. You fix it before that. The scrotum is a real problem in this surgery. So here's this rather poorly designed flap. You would never design a flap the way a scrotal flap is designed. It is too narrow and too long. You'd want a wider flap for the better blood spot. So here's this scrotal flaps that make a good looking scrotum and it's doing fine. It's living its best life. But I'm going to disrupt all that. I'm going to go in there and put a hen's egg size hole in the middle of it. And in doing that, I might knock out the three capillaries keeping the skin edge alive. And so you can get erosion, but it's really disappearance of the scrotal flap. And so what I've done against that is I really try to convince my patients, please let me put in testicular implants first. Wait four months. Now we know you don't have any scrotal complications. I'll just pop out that implant, drop in the pump. And now I know I literally can't have a complication in the scrotum because I'm not doing any scrotal surgery. So that's been a technique way to decrease the amount of times that the scrotum literally disappears and oops, there's the pump. So it's the scrotum that you see more erosion. Yeah, you get, you get just loss of tissue integrity. And then next thing you know, you're staring at the implant. And so that's a, to me, that's a stupid reason to lose an implant. So I try to put testes in first, get that complication way out of the way. And then I only have to deal with the true infections of which at this point, I don't know what else I could do to decrease those further. Last time I spoke to men, and that's Min Jun for the viewers, he was talking about a new form, a new IPP out there. There's two IPPs available in the United States, the AMS and the Coloplast. Interestingly, decades ago, Coloplast engineers made some design decisions, which they had no idea would have any Im impact on, you know, placing these in a phalloplasty patient. Couldn't know. And yet it's designed very well for phalloplasty patients. Now, AMS is a great product. I think they can be used interchangeably in cis men with, you know, they're just the same thing. But contrary to that, the AMS has had some design changes. Like, for example, and you may not even know this because I didn't, the proximal one-third of an AMS is stick stiff. It's not soft. And sometimes that would put that bit into the kind of the lower abdomen base of the penis. And so you'd have this pokey thing. So I don't use AMSs, I use Coloplast. Now fast forward to they've developed one called the Zephyr in Europe. Now here's the problem. Is the Zephyr very different than the Coloplast one I use? No, it is not very different. I'm not at all convinced that it's better. The initial study of the Zephyr actually had much worse results 
than those achieved by high volume implanters like myself. So look, I'm as excited about the new, new thing as the next guy, maybe more excited as the next person, but the Zephyr is not going to solve our problems. I have spoken to the head designer at Coloplast and we sat with a blank piece of paper and said, how would we design the perfect device? And you know what? It would have two minor changes. We're pretty damn close with what we have right now. It's not as broken as people think it is. For patients, I know you guys obviously work very hard to get insurances to cover it. And when insurances do cover it, what is the cost to the patient? Well, yeah, I mean, I'll correct that a little bit. 99% of our patients have insurance coverage. So every major insurance company you can name, Blue Cross Blue Shield, United Healthcare, they all cover. Some corporations cover even your copay, Starbucks, Amazon. So while five years ago, I would have said 95% of our patients have insurance. Now I'm going to tell you 99% of our patients have insurance. So we work really hard to never work off insurance. North American healthcare is ridiculously expensive. So OR is about $6,000 an hour. So if I'm doing a phalloplasty on you, by uh, halfway through the first day, you've got a $40,000 bill and you've only paid the OR bill. You haven't paid your anesthesiologist. You haven't spent two days in the ICU. You haven't spent five days in the hospital and you haven't paid the surgeon. So it's probably a $120,000, but that's why nobody pays cash for it. It would be better to quit your job, go work at Amazon, and whatever you get paid that first year, your salary would be $120,000 plus your paycheck. I just had a quick question about the fistula. Do you recommend us biopsying it if we discover it? No, the fistulas are all highly, we know why the fistula form. I'll make a point about the flap that is used to make a phallus. For starters, it's the largest free flap in human endeavors. So if you have a horrible face cancer and they chop out half your face and you get a forearm flap to cover it. That thing's eight by eight centimeters. Ours is 22 by 16 centimeters. So it's already a huge flap. And flaps, you know, have that sort of central artery. Think of it as like a tree trunk and then the little branches go all the way to the edge. But now look at the corners. I've taken away the blood supply from that corner from the part I cut away, right? So no blood supply coming there. It's the farthest away from the artery and so those corners can die. And so most fistulas are from partial flap loss and they don't require a fancy explanation like urethral cancer. I guess lastly, what does your work week look like? I think that's a great question. I always encourage people like when they're interviewing for jobs and things to say, to say, hey, bring me through my work week. I think you can really understand. So I operate four out of five days. We tend to do phalloplasty. I tend to do phalloplasty every Monday. And mainly that's because phalloplasty requires a lot of preparation. You know, it's three surgeons, the OR all day in the OR, two setup teams. So it's not nice to the OR to move that around for them. So they know Monday I'm doing a phalloplasty. ICU knows we're going to get a phalloplasty patient today at three. I will quickly say that one of the things I like about the way we do things is that so I think if one surgeon started a phalloplasty from beginning to end, it would take them 20 hours. Now, that would be ridiculous, right? So we put three surgeons on it. So while I'm taking out the vagina, lengthening the urethra, making the scrotum, finding a nerve for the nerve hookup, I'm usually done before 11 a.m. Simultaneously, the micro team is lifting that flap. Around 11, I'm going to get up from between the legs, go over to the phallus, start making the urethra, start making the phallus, maybe make a glance. They move over to the groin to prepare the vessels. And so we're doing this routinely in six hours. It's absolutely normal for us to be done at 1.30 in the afternoon. So Monday, I do phalloplasties. Tuesday, I do something else. Wednesday, I see people in clinic. Thursday, I do something else. I didn't mention vaginoplasties there, but I, I might do that. You know, in my practice, we have a plastic surgeon, a general surgeon, me, a reconstructive urologist, and then a fully trained plastic surgeon who's a fully trained reconstructive urologist. So that means that those people's penile implants fall to me. The urethral strictures fall to me. So I end up doing a lot of penile implants and urethral strictures on this Thursdays and Fridays. So you mentioned ICU. All the patients get an ICU visit? Yeah. So the Vaginoplasty patients are admitted for two days. They don't need ICU. You know, we really experimented. We have some very well-worked out post-anesthesia care plans, post-surgery care plans. 
And it was really funny. We wrote a paper about it. We had somebody say, well, oh, no, that's cookie cutter medicine. We said, no, 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 it's not cookie cutter medicine because I know exactly who's fallen off the expected recovery pathway the moment they fall off it. So then we can go in there and say, whoa, 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 what's happening here? Because by today you should be doing this and you're not. Is there a problem? So pretty complicated, sophisticated post-care pathways. So two days for vaginoplasty, outpatient for medoidioplasty. So they go home the same day, outpatient for nullo. Um, the phalloplasty is the one that stay five days. But I'll emphasize five days is short. You know, in Europe, I think a while ago, they were staying 38 days and 22 days. Yeah, you know, things are different in Europe than they are here. The ICU care isn't because they need a lot of care. It's because they need close observation. We need to know, is there a hematoma? Is there vascular compromise? We use a really nifty tool called a T-STAT, which uses near-infrared spectrum light, and it's like a little pulse ox. It actually tells you the exact amount of oxygen-carrying capacity in the capillaries, not in the arterioles, not in the veins, the capillaries. And it tells you the hemoglobin. And so if the hemoglobin rises, you know you might have sort of congestion in there. Maybe you've got a vein problem. If the mixed oxygen saturation falls, uh uh-oh, maybe I've got a problem with the artery. Since your risk of having an artery or vein or hematoma is like very high for 12 hours, less high for the next 12 hours, you know, really at the third day, no one's going to develop an unexpected or very unlikely to develop an unexpected problem. So they can leave the one-on-one ICU situation. They don't, it's not an ICU room, it's ICU levels of care. They stay in the same room and get decreased down to just regular med surge after that. Well, I could probably take your brain all day. I learned so much. Thank you so much for just allowing me to ask you more questions and learn as a urologist. And I hope that our listeners got to really get a pretty good review and overview of transgender surgeries. And hopefully we better understand and are able to provide better care as healthcare providers. Thank you, Hester. It was a real pleasure. I really appreciate your doing this. I know that this uses up your precious time, and I think it's a really impressive thing that you do. So thanks a lot. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at underscore Backtable on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable is hosted by Aditya Bagrodia and Jose Silva. Our audio team lead is Kieran Gannon with support from Caleb Hodson, Josh McWhorter, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz with support from Ishan Sangwan and Vidavi Patwardhan. Social media and PR by Chi Ding. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.